Welcome back to episode five of the Speak Out Loud podcast. We are so glad you're joining us again today. Absolutely. I can't believe that it's already been five. I know, five episodes. A little over a month in yes. already. So we just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for uh, the things you've said online. And, and just we appreciate you so much. Yes, thank you for subscribing also. That is one thing that will really help you as the listener to know when the next podcast is coming out. To subscribe on Apple or Spotify. Also, we really are trying to keep the link updated in my bio for Instagram so that that way you can just click on that. So we're trying to make it as easy as possible for you to be able to follow along and listen um, about our journey. Definitely. So, hey, help us share this. Help us uh, get it out to people that uh, might uh, might benefit from this message and certainly need some hope here as we are still in these entry stages of 2021. I know the first few weeks in, a lot of folks might want a do-over, but uh, hey, there's hope for the new year, right? There's hope for as we look ahead, and we are so excited to get to share that with you. Today, we're going to come to you and talk a little bit more in depth about a topic we began to address in our pilot episode. So if you haven't listened to the pilot, really the pilot's a uh, two-part podcast, our first two episodes, we really talk a lot about our journey, and we talk about uh, the, the story and what was really the beginning of our mental health story and then the beginning of our recovery story. And in the midst of that, talking about recovery, we do touch, and Stacy touches on a number of pieces and elements, maybe to uh, treatment, to outpatient treatment, as well as inpatient treatment. But today, we wanted to jump in and go a little bit more in depth and just talk about um, really the, the treatment plan, Stacy, that you have done and that you're still doing. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, we're not therapists, we're not counselors, so we try to make that clear at the beginning of every episode. So we're not necessarily prescribing this for anybody. We are not telling you what you should do necessarily, but we're also telling you out of our experience, out of our journey, what has worked, what has worked for us, mm-hmm. um, maybe some things that haven't worked always. But uh, So that's what we want to share with you today. And so we want to jump in kind of on this both a two, two-sided approach. One, talking about what led to inpatient treatment, but also what led to outpatient treatment, too. What I really want to let you in on today as a part of my life is not only a pivotal time that not only changed my life, but saved my life as well. God really used this time and this season in my life to literally um, save me. So, Well, and so... Going into that then, Stace, what do you think or what would you say led up to your decision to pursue inpatient treatment? Well, it wasn't only my decision. It was kind of decided for me, um, to be quite honest. Um, And that's often the case with someone who is sick needing help in any type of treatment. Uh, It's not really something that you're not scared to death of. So that is a totally normal feeling. I was um, diagnosed with anorexia quite a few years ago and had tried hard to keep it in check, sometimes by myself, but mostly with an outpatient nutritionist. Um, As we went through this stressful time in our life, in our marriage, with our family, it being in the ministry, and um, with depression and financial situations, um, I got significantly worse with my anorexia. My heart began to shrink according to EKGs, and um, I was losing more and more weight. My organs were shutting down. I was just not well. 
I was so weak um, that I was in bed more. I was less able to be um, the mom that I wanted to be, the wife I wanted to be. Um, because of finances largely, I was um, without a nutritionist for a short amount of time, for about a year. And um, when I was able to find a new one um, and finances had gotten better due to a good insurance plan, uh, she immediately said that it was time for me to go to inpatient treatment. I was too sick to stay at home. And um, just in short, I was literally dying of anorexia. Yeah. Well, and, and so as we talked about, we, we got there. Um, you, you entered the program, really a top-notch, one of the best programs in the country. Yes. Fortunately, it was close to home, only about 100 miles away. And so we were able to, you know, as a family, not be so distant. We could, we could engage and, and be with you frequently through that. But um, as you look back on that time, Stacy, and, and I think one of the things that our goal is with this episode is to help maybe take some stereotypes off of treatment, whether it be inpatient or outpatient, sure. and, and help you as a listener maybe, you know, as you're making decisions for yourself and your treatment plan and, and what you're doing is, is maybe just encourage you to consider some of these things that we have done, or at least so that you know the commitment Stacy has made and the hard work it's been in many cases to go into recovery. So, mm-hmm. Stacey, as you look back to um, what were some of those key parts of inpatient treatment, what are just some of those, I don't know if highlights is the right word, but some of those things that really you think back on, okay, those were difference makers for me. Sure. Well, I absolutely started out in denial that I even needed to go and be there, yeah. even though all things medically were showing that that's where I needed to be. I really thought I would get there and um, be ashamed that I was there because of um, how much better possibly I was doing than they thought, Mm -hmm. than the doctors thought I was going to be doing. And um, the first day that I even got there, um, when I ate, I got sick time and time again. Mm -hmm. Um, My body did not know how to digest food anymore. So as I got into the first few days... What I thought and what we thought was going to be six weeks of me being in ICU to get stabilized to where when I stood up, I wasn't dizzy or passing out or that I could keep food down um, and that my depression wasn't going to really hinder me moving forward. I quickly saw that I was exactly where I did need to be. And um, so... The first six, seven weeks was ICU for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not this stale uh, hospital feel. It was very much a um, a place where you could go and feel comfortable with the beginning stages of getting better. Mm-hmm. Without ICU, I couldn't progress into the next stage because I wasn't stable enough to do that yet. Um, I found that it was highly exposure therapy. Exposure therapy wasn't us talking about eating, but we ate and then we talked about it, Mm -hmm. how it made us feel. Um, It's very common in my mind around food for the whole time I'm eating with each bite for my mind to be screaming that I am doing the wrong thing. Uh, Whereas people who don't have anorexia 
might be thinking, I'm nourishing my body. This tastes good. Whereas with every bite, like Doug has mentioned before, with every bite in my mind, it's screaming, you are doing the wrong thing. So it was exposure therapy. It was very difficult, uh, but I was supported. Mm-hmm. I had cheerleaders all around me from the techs to the doctors to the nutritionists to the people, the women who I was going through this with. One thing that I do not regret is going to an all-women's facility. Um, I really just needed to focus on um, the things that women go through and that our bodies go through that we would have in common. Uh, They educated me from day one. I can remember getting sick in front of everybody in that uh, group room because they only allow like 12 to 15 people in this highest level of care um, with chronic eating disorders. And so I got sick in front of everybody because my body didn't know what to do. And when that happened, um, I was shocked and I was um, taken into um, my back to my room there in the ICU. And immediately after that, the nutritionist came in, Claire, who is precious. She came in and she started making a meal plan with me. There was, this was not a negotiable time in my treatment, nor was any other time. Their goal was to not make sure that I felt comfortable about what we were doing, but that I felt safe. And there, you know, in that safety, I got comfortable, but they were always pushing me forward, always moving me forward and educating me and the other girls. Um, One of the biggest things that happened was that we would all, at certain points in our treatment, when we got a little stronger, um, we would uh, share our life story. And I can remember when I was... Uh, in my therapist's office, Crystal's office, and she was, I was about to go share it. And some of the texts were going to come in and doctors and um, nurses and everything to hear my story because I'd built relationships with them. I can remember just crying and saying, I cannot do this. Now I've shared my story, my testimony, what God has done in my life. I don't know how many times, but this part of my life has been so secretive because I didn't want to gain weight, that I couldn't imagine sharing my secrets. Mm -hmm. I couldn't imagine sharing how I got to that point. And so it was just really vulnerable for me. And I got into the group room and I started to share and I just had a piece that came over me that was just like, these people are on your side and they understand. And how many times have I looked at people across the table not in a judgmental way, more of a lonely way, just going, how can I even describe to you what is going on in my mind? And these people just got it. Yeah. I think that that maybe is such a, a key factor of the inpatient treatment, really of all treatment, but this kind of intensive program you're in is you were surrounded by people that supported you. You were surrounded by people that understood, which was so big, mm-hmm. and that got you. And, and truly, they were experts. So you were getting, mm-hmm. um, you know, from daily therapy appointments to seeing, you know, medical doctor frequently, um, a psychiatrist to help you, you know, work on your medications, as well as, as you said, just the, the really hard work of the exposure therapy. You know, that was going on in a very intensive um, um, format every day. 
But I think the fact that you were understood and supported at least made it doable and made it possible for you to do it. They did everything they could to make it possible. All I had to do was do it. Yeah. All I had to do was commit to one meal at a time, one bite at a time. And I would literally um, just sit there and go, what is truth and what are lies? And they helped me kind of weave my way through that maze mentally just of going, these are lies. Mm-hmm. These are things that maybe the media has taught you. Maybe past things in your family have taught you. Maybe things that you have just picked up on your own and believed um, into making those things seem almost ridiculous. And then the truth becoming solidified in my mind. Yeah. So that was huge. The The cool thing about treatment is it's cohesive. Um, you've got everybody working together on the same page. Whereas when you're outpatient, which is also very, very good if you have an outpatient team and it's a situation where you can stay home and do outpatient work, it's very important for those people to be communicating mm-hmm. because things do get lost in translation, especially when you're sick. Yeah. And to have that only on you as the patient sometimes isn't beneficial in our experience. Yeah. Stacy, just as you describe it, it obviously... Um, it was, it was intense, it was focused, it was hard work, but maybe just um, a couple things about how difficult was it, and maybe that even goes without saying, but just how difficult was inpatient treatment mm-hmm. for you? Yeah, I think some people, the stereotype around that was with that I was going to a place and I was just going to drink a boost or an insure type nutritional supplement and... Um, just be with people who got me. That is actually the opposite of what happened. Yeah. And so it was um, not a spa. It was not a spa. <laughs> it was not a spa. Yeah. <laughs> it was not a time for me to go and connect with my inner self and go, wow, this is fun. I'm going to eat grapes. And um, it was actually the opposite. We had a chef and he would cook food for us that was um, very well done, very well made. But I had stereotypes around the different kinds of food. And so when they would service these foods, I was so conflicted on eating them that I would cry through most of these meals. Mm -hmm. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. And I wasn't the only one crying. And um, (laughs) it was just that we needed to support each other. And that's exactly what we did. When I was sitting there, I would look around the table that I was at, and you would advance to different tables. And when I was at the beginner's table, it was a pretty quiet scene. We were just really trying to um, take one bite and then the next. A lot of behaviors came out at that point where we would do things to try to not have to eat because the eating disorder was so loud, and I'm not going to go into detail about that. don't want to give anybody ideas about what they can do. Um... But at the same time, I would look around and say, you know what? These are the most courageous women mm-hmm, that I could ever be around. And they were women who were not only fighting for themselves, but they were fighting for people around them in their regular daily life and in their families. That's one thing that I found that we will talk about in just a few minutes more so is that I wasn't fighting as much for myself as I was for other people. But it was literally the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah, definitely. And I got to witness that. And it was very courageous. And you put an incredible amount of work into it. One thing that really helped was that um, when I first was separated from Doug, 
when I went into the doors of the ICU area, we had just said goodbye to each other because that that um, separation has to happen so that you can start to um, learn and get better and rest and become a part of the program. And I was walking through the doors to that part of the hospital and um, they had me in a wheelchair in the nurse's center. I looked up and she had this gift for me and um, it was a bag of the most beautiful red roses I had ever seen because you and when you're in a treatment facility where you could harm yourself because that's been a part of your past you have to get things that are not going to hurt you so this was something specific they could send you flowers and they had to be in a certain kind of bag and I saw the most beautiful red roses and they were from Doug and they just he said do it for you you do it for us make this count and I was just like, I still have that card in my desk because I, it kind of reset my mind. And I just thought, you know what? This isn't just affecting me. This has affected my family for too long. Yeah. Well, what um, Stacy's heart as it was, and it was not court-ordered treatment by any means. So you were not, you know, locked in there. You weren't required to stay. Um, I don't know how much you knew this, but you could have left. <laughs> Um, at any time. So what helped you stay committed and really complete the program? Because it was, you know, they told you when you first went in probably six to eight weeks, ended up it lasted four months at every stage. You know, we would have those discussions when they would come to us and say, I think, you know, I think a few more weeks here, another month, maybe in this transitional part of the program would be so helpful to really helping this to stick and, and you were in, you were committed. And as hard as it was for us to be apart, you were also like, I'm, I'm going to make sure I get well. I'm going to do what it takes to get well. Mm-hmm. So what, um, what was it that maybe helped you stick it out like that? Just the, the resilience to do it. In ICU, I was very limited on guests because you were supposed to rest and not burn any of the calories or any of the nutrition that you were gaining so that that way you could start to sustain your life and and your heart to start growing again to be the size it should be. So they were very much monitoring us for that. But when I saw my girls come and visit me for the first time in ICU, I will never forget the looks on their faces. Um, There were people walking around with feeding tubes because they needed it. It wasn't scary. It was just hard. Mm -hmm. It was sad. And when that option had been been given to me at the beginning, will you eat or do we need to tube you? I just said, can you give me a chance to eat? The first few days, that did not go well. But I didn't want to give up and go. And it's not like people who have a tube give up. But I was given the option. Um, Some people are not because of where they are in their stages of their eating disorder. But I was given the option. And so when when the girls walked in and I saw them and I hugged them and um, I was in a twin bed, twin-size bed there in my hospital room, and they could lay on either side of me. And we just sat there and colored and did um, word finds. And we just um, laughed. But we were all sad at the same time. I just thought, I can't do this to them. I can't, I can't not finish. It became mm-hmm. so much bigger in that moment than about me. 
I just thought of the girls and I thought, how long has it been since my husband has had a partner, not a patient? And um, I just kept thinking to myself, do not leave a legacy of death for those sweet girls. And once you, once I felt like I, God gave us these children after losing our son and he gave us the gift of these two healthy girls, even though I was so deep into anorexia when I carried both of them, I thought I cannot leave them. There's no way. And so it was about so much more. I didn't feel like fighting for myself, but I did not leave it. Want to leave a legacy of death for these sweet girls or for you. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for your commitment to us and your commitment to, to putting the work into that program. I remember uh, as it was wrapping up and it was wrapping up for you, right? Um, this was the fall of that year. So you were coming home just right before Christmas and you had, you know, I asked you if you wanted me to come up to, to Tulsa to come pick you up and bring you back. And you had your car there at that time. And you're like, no, we, we've got some special things to wrap up that I'm going to come home. So I I stayed home from work that day and was just, you know, probably had to clean the house up for one to make sure it was ready. But but two, um, you know, I remember I was there at my desk looking out the window when you pulled in the driveway. And I walked out and I just kind of raised my hands above my head. Like it was like, you know, you just, hey, you just finished the marathon. You know, you won the race. And I'll, I'll never forget that moment. It was pretty cool and uh, pretty amazing for us as a family. Yeah, I can remember seeing that and just thinking, it's just really, it was just really hard. Yeah. And well, it's, it's hard now to even talk about. It's, it is, it the is notion so of hard. it. Yeah. It's just them to keep needing me to stay longer. Um, what was supposed to be such a brief amount of time just hit home with me, and I became a family with those people there. Mm-hmm. But... I can remember looking at the look on Riley's face in particular because Shelby was in college. See, all this happened when Shelby was a brand new freshman in college. I couldn't even go see her. Yeah. Riley was a sophomore in high school. And I can remember coming in and Riley um, just saying, Mom, are you home? Are you really home this time? Do you get to stay? Yeah. And I just thought, I hope so. But I told her, absolutely. And that's really helped that stay with me. Yeah. Well, I think to me, the the key word maybe to think of that whole process is commitment. And you were just, you were committed. You were committed to uh, the treatment. You were committed to the process. And you put the work in. And, and we're all blessed because of it today. Well, since being home, you know, I think one important thing for a lot of people to understand is that it's not necessarily just, okay, one and done get through it and you're good from there on. There certainly is ongoing elements of treatment that have to happen, ongoing things. And so, you know, since being home, um, you've had an ongoing outpatient treatment kind of regimen that you are committed to. And, you know, we've talked about in previous episodes, this idea of recovering well, Mm -hmm. kind of a commitment to, yes, I'm in recovery, I'm on that journey, but my, my intention is to recover well. Maybe there's not a finish line at the moment, but to recover well as I run the race. Mm-hmm. So how does that ongoing kind of outpatient program fit into that idea of recovering well? I didn't realize, and I don't think a person can realize or should realize and jump too far ahead, but rather take one step at a time, 
wherever you are in your treatment, in your recovery. But I had no idea how hard it was going to be when I got home. Yeah. We had lived apart for four months. Mm-hmm. And y'all had kind of gotten into your routine. And I didn't feel like a stranger to it. But it did take a hot minute for us to go, okay, we're back together. This yeah. is what we're going to, this is what the new life has got to look like in order for me to stay home. Well, and there was a lot of change, let's be honest, because un, unbeknownst to us, when before we knew you were going to go to treatment, we had closed on a house. Yes. <laughs> and so literally, we moved when you were in treatment. Yeah. We didn't plan it that way. Sure. And so um, <laughs> you, we had actually sent you pictures and you helped us to kind of give us a direction on how to decorate. But there was a lot of decorating we hadn't done. Until you got home. So we've been living in this house for three or four months. And uh, so you're walking into uh, kind of new life at home, uh, trying to kind of recalibrate just how we all fit together, but also walking into a brand new house. You'd never even slept in this house before. Mm-hmm. And it's like, welcome home and welcome back to your new house. And <laughs> so lots of change, which just that yeah. can rattle anybody. I couldn't find the silverware. And that was like, whoa, this is real. And what I'd done was I brought home with me some tools um, so that that way I didn't just fall flat. They really, they know at the uh, treatment how much you're going to need these tools. This isn't their first rodeo. They get you ready. And I had a paper that I brought home that um, said all of the things that are my triggers per se, the things that were going to make it harder for me to eat or the things to look for mm-hmm. if I was starting to go south um, and not eat as much as I was supposed to or um, get as much of my fluids in in a day. Or maybe if I was getting really quiet, the depression was coming in and I was going to not um, you know, be able to talk myself into eating that meal. And so just some supportive tools for my family and for myself that I came home with. Also... Um, at first, I had two nutritionist appointments a week, two therapy appointments a week. I came home to a team that was ready for me. I have known people who came home to thinking, okay, like I did at first, okay, I can just do this. But when you're used to full-time help, you are you don't even go to the restroom by yourself till you're in the very end of the um of the process Mm -hmm. um, because of behaviors that you can use with anorexia and bulimia and self-harm. I very much needed those people to accompany me because I was very sick and I did use those behaviors. But um, I didn't want to risk relapsing. And so when I brought home these tools, uh, I really needed everybody to be on board with me. And they were. Uh, They say, well, what I learned was, not they say, but what I learned at this treatment center was that the risk for you to relapse is very high within the first three years. And so I really kept that regimen of the two nutritionists and two two therapy sessions, psychiatrist appointments of them tweaking my medication for several years pretty Mm -hmm. intensely. They knew what my mind was still screaming they can't guarantee that my mind's going to stop screaming. So mm-hmm. I have to work in spite of what my mind is saying. So all day, every day, I'm doing the opposite, if I choose to, of what my mind is telling me to do. And man, it gets so loud. It gets so confusing. But I do want to recover well. Um, 
a lot of work between my family needs to be able to trust me again was a thought for me that I have a lot. Um, my friends meeting me at Chick-fil-A, um, you know, when I was struggling or not. Um, people just going with me to the grocery store and helping me buy enough groceries for four people. I was buying enough groceries for not even one before I left for treatment. Just these changes that the things that they had taught me had to be, con um, you know, consistent when I got home was just vital. Um I had a choice to make, like I said a minute ago, is if I was going to recover well, it didn't mean I had to recover perfect. Yeah, that's good. Those are two really uh, different things. Mm -hmm. And to just do the next right thing. Well, there's so much, if, if, it's, if it's about being perfect, there's so much pressure tied into that that really the pressure becomes counterproductive. If it's about recovering well, and as you said, doing the next right thing, there's, there's room in there to give yourself grace. And, and if you have a, a harder day for whatever reason, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be a major setback. It mm -hmm. can be, okay, we're going to start fresh. We're going to reset. We're going to do the next right thing. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important, um, Stacey, to understand just how much commitment this has taken. Yeah, and one of the hardest things that I knew was going to happen, but I didn't know it to degree um, or not. I didn't know what people were thinking, and I have often thought I knew what people were thinking about me. But when I went in, I could wear children's clothes just about. Mm -hmm. And when I came out, I couldn't. Um, they prepared us for that um, as much as they could when we were in treatment. As you do change in size, it, that is a reality. I did need to put on a substantial amount of nutrition. One of my biggest fears is what are people going to think about the way I look when I come out? Because to me, as the person who was the one putting on the nutrition, I felt like it was drastic. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, they would say, okay, this weekend when we were in treatment, they would say this weekend, go with some people that you trust from treatment and go get that next size of pair of jeans or get that next size of shirt because that was the reality of getting better. Yeah. A 45-year-old a woman is not supposed to wear a child size or a size that is in, you know, I don't want to be specific, so I'll just leave it at that. Sure, really small clothes. Really yeah. small clothes. And yeah. so uh, I found that people were not being hard on the way I looked. People were actually saying things like, I'm glad you're alive. Yeah. So I had that all wrong. Mm -hmm. um, have I still struggled with that? Yes. Do I feel like that's vain? I feel like it's an eating disorder. Sure. And the uh, the scrutiny I can put myself through, the dysmorphia that happens with eating disorder, all of that planted around that really can make it difficult. And that's why the need for support and being um, determined to recover well and do the next right thing is so important to me. Yeah. Well, and as we kind of, as you've done a great job here, Stacey, of, of maybe painting that picture for others about just what it looked like for you, um, what that experience was like, um, both the inpatient piece of that as well as the outpatient. I think, I think for you listening, one of the things that we would like to encourage you to do, again, we're not prescribing anything. That's mm -hmm. not our role and that's not our expertise. 
But by telling you our story, what our goal is, is to help maybe remove some of those stereotypes that unfortunately our culture around us puts on treatment and and puts around us in treatment. Ironically, I know this is going to sound really weird to you, but there are days, seasons where I miss it Mm -hmm. because of the type of environment I was in. I was understood 24-7. I didn't have that look receive that look that I sometimes get on people's faces of I've taken so many bites I wish or people saying man I wish I had that problem I can't stop eating you know different things that people have said that I don't take as mean I take as a misunderstanding yeah and so there are times and seasons where I literally miss those ladies so much and I miss being there But I always come back to the fact that treatment is not where I'm supposed to be. Treatment was a stepping stone for life for me to be able to come home. That's good. That's good. And I think it also speaks to just there's such a value of of being understood and, and, and being around people that understand you. And so... For those of you out there that may be considering different levels of treatment or if you have a loved one that is battling some mental health issues... Um, again, we know there's lots of factors that may play into that. Stacy referenced some of those for us. We, we had to wait many years before really the inpatient program was an option for us because of finances and some insurance issues. We were blessed at this stage where this happened to have access to insurance and, and some resources that made it possible. But we also have been there where we know when it's not possible and you're doing everything you can to, you know, to pay, you know, um, out of your pocket. I mean, I've, we've taken on extra jobs. We've done different things to help pay for treatment. But I too think that that for us, it was that important. It was a commitment. And, and Stacy, I want to commend you too for your commitment to it. You know, unfortunately, our culture can tell us um, kind of several messages about treatment. One is, oh, we don't talk about it. We shouldn't talk about it. It's hush-hush. Or two, it's something that we make light of or maybe in, you know, in media and TV it's kind of made fun of at times. And really, sadly, no other health condition is treated like that. You know, it's it's not treated in, in those kind of ways. And so if there's anything we can do to help take some of that, I don't know, mystery or that shame, that shame exactly, off of, of what treatment is and what it looks like and what it might be, you know, what you might need to pursue, certainly we want to do that. And I think, Stacey, it takes a lot of courage to talk about, you know, what you've invested in. But... You have invested in it, and, and certainly there's a medicine regimen you have. But on top of that, it's it's this this long term, um, you know, commitment to this cognitive therapy, which is helping you. And and we all have these kind of those well worn pathways in our brains that just it's how we respond to things. It's how we react. It's because it's with just like a, a a path you'd walk on. It becomes the path of least resistance. That's what we go to. And cognitive therapy that you've been doing, both inpatient and now outpatient, um, helps you to relearn those pathways in many ways of how to respond and what to do. So, mm-hmm. so I, I, you know, for me as your husband, I can't thank you enough for your mm-hmm. investment in this because I know it's got to be difficult and I know it is hard and I know it takes energy and effort. And there's many days when you come home from a session or two and you're kind of wiped out, but it's because... It's not you're just going in and chatting about the weather. I mean, you're putting hard work in and, and really investing in that. Something that God has literally gifted me with that some people don't have when they get home is an amazing home team. And I can't say enough about 
um, how precious they are to me. I have the most enduring and persevering and steadfast team. They work so well together. Um, they aren't, um, I don't get conflicting me- um, messages from them. And that is a huge gift because I'm a pleaser. Most people or a lot of people who have the illnesses that I struggle with are also. So that can make it very complicated and they make it very doable for me. Recovery is very much an ebb and flow for me, but I'm learning one step at a time to not give up and to not hate myself for not doing recovery perfectly. Because of what I go through every day, all day, God has added this major part of a team to my life and to my story as a whole. Yeah, that's great. That's beautiful, babe. So, Stacey, as we wrap up today, I want to refer back to something that you shared in our, um, actually our pilot episode, where you talked about kind of a, a Bible verse that you would say is your life verse. Um, it's Psalm 118. It's in Psalm 118. It says, you know, I will not die, but live and proclaim what the Lord has done. And, and so how has treatment and therapy played into that in helping give you life and really help you give life to others? Well, with a mind like mine, with the manic depression, the anxiety, the self-harm, the anorexia, the personality, borderline personality disorder, all these things mixed into this big ball together. I'll be honest, there are days that I don't think I can make it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say, well, gosh, mine's so much harder than somebody else. I just know my path. And some days I don't want to be here. Some days that is not considered living yeah. to try to juggle all those things um, with or without God's help, but mostly um, with his help because otherwise I do fail. Um, but what a commitment it has been to say I will not die in itself. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not lying. Um, just to be able to say that is a commitment. And some days I do waver in that, and my friends and family have to come alongside me and go, this is why you're fighting. Then to proclaim what the Lord has done, that means to tell others, and that's one reason why this podcast is so precious to us. I do want to tell you what God's doing in our lives and how he's sustaining us and how he is, um, I think, over time making us more resilient, but that the fight is still so real. Yeah. Well... You said earlier, and you talked about when talking about how scary it was in inpatient treatment for you have to tell your story. I think a beautiful way to kind of cap this off today and also looking at this verse right here, I will not die, but proclaim what the Lord has done. Um, Several years after you completed treatment, the treatment center invited you to come back and speak to their staff and the team and even broader staff, maybe beyond your specific team, to talk about the impact, to talk about how this program had really saved your life. And you had a chance to go back and not only thank those that um, had helped you, but really speak this verse. Mm -hmm. I'm alive and I'm proclaiming what God has done in my life. And you're also you know, thanking them for their role treatment had played in that. So mm-hmm. what a beautiful kind of capstone to that whole process right there that that opportunity was given to you. Well, hey, we want to thank you for listening in today. And Stacy, I want to commend you for your courage to share some of these things more in depth about uh, 
what you've gone through and what you're committed to and the impact it's made on your life mm-hmm. and, and how it's not only blessed you, but it's blessed us. And it's really blessed all those around you. Not only is it giving you life, you're giving life to others. And that's a beautiful thing. We want to invite you guys back. So next week, we're going to have a special panel discussion with uh, several of Stacy's friends. We're going to have a roundtable. Yeah. There's going to be five of us. It's going to be me and, and four ladies, and I'm going to uh, try to moderate and host <laughs> this thing and uh, get out of there with uh, uh, everything okay. But uh, they're good friends, and so we're excited to get let you hear from them. As we talk about just the value and the role of friends in the lives of those that struggle with mental health. And so we're going to get some feedback from them. We have some questions for them. Can't wait to share that with you. I think it's going to be a really special episode. So be looking for that next week. Uh, We want to thank you today for listening. Yes, thank you. Uh, Again, if you haven't shared it, uh, make sure to uh, follow or subscribe, depending on your podcast player. And we'll be back here in one week. See you then. God bless you guys.